This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, August 16th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. Welcome to a new broadcast week here on the program. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. On today's show, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican Tennessee, she will be here later this hour talking about Afghanistan. This will be a very Afghanistan-heavy show today because... The developments are happening really at warp speed over there. And almost all of the developments are terrible. In our middle hour, Jessica Tarloff will join us, one of our friends on the left, get her perspective. And in the final hour of the show today, the 5 o'clock Eastern hour, Joey Jones will be here. He lost both of his legs to an IED in Afghanistan. We will get his perspective. Fox News alert as we begin. We'll bring you stats. Coronavirus cases cumulatively, officially, 36.7 million in the United States. The death toll now, 621,228 Americans have died from COVID. We will not take our eye off of the COVID ball either. The closing bell on Wall Street is 52 minutes away or so. And thus far, a mixed day on Wall Street. The Dow, though, up 36 points at this hour, trading at 35,551. Well, if you're like me, you spent a lot of the weekend watching the news, looking at social media, and following the absolute tragic, maddening debacle playing out in Afghanistan. What an abject humiliation this has been for the United States of America. I don't know what else to say about it. You can be totally gung-ho. We needed to get every single American out of that country. It's been far too long. You can be fully gung-ho. No, we needed a presence there for the foreseeable future. It's a staging area for a small number of our troops that can help keep the peace and maintain stability and have strike forces to go get terrorists there before they plot and get us here. That was the original rationale, after all. And it's not like the threat just disappeared or expired. It has been largely held at bay because of an imperfect but succeeding policy. Was that worth the casualties and the expense? A lot of people say no. But that mentality could shift as soon as there's another major attack on Americans on the West or on the American homeland. It is also true that our presence on the ground in Afghanistan had 
dwindled down to two to three thousand, and that was relatively successful and stable. Casualties were extremely rare among U.S. personnel. Well, the decision was made back in the spring by the new president that we were going to completely withdraw. And there were people who immediately warned that it could end very badly and that the deterioration of the situation on the ground could be far worse than we had expected. And they were largely, those critics, poo-pooed by the administration. Now, look, I'm not just going to sit here and attack Joe Biden and attack his administration and attack the Democrats because this failure was a long time coming with a lot of people responsible. And it's true that the deadline and that the policy of withdrawal was set by President Trump in a lot of ways, who campaigned on it. It's because a lot of Americans do want us out of Afghanistan. But whether you are in agreement on that overall goal or not, the execution of the policy is critically important. And that execution and the final details fall with the commander-in-chief. And the commander-in-chief is Joe Biden. And this failure is an absolute disgrace. We don't know what it would have looked like under Trump. If he had won a second term, if he would have been convinced by military leaders who were urging Biden not to do it this way, would Trump have listened potentially or done it differently? We don't know. We know what is happening. We can see it with our eyes and we know who's in charge. And we remember what they assured us would and would not happen. And it's just been wrong and wrong and wrong. There are actually members of the Biden administration going on television and pretending that their hands were completely tied. This is not their fault. This isn't their war. This is Trump's doing. And while I'm more than happy to have the conversation about whether Trump's policy of withdrawal was the right one, it is absolutely laughable that this administration would say, oh, well, they couldn't do anything because of the previous president. They have been reversing everything that Trump did reflexively going through and pulling one and a lot of it just feels just knee-jerk politics even policies that were working they could have done nothing at the border and had a better situation than they have now much better much much better they could have done nothing in afghanistan and not be presiding over this catastrophe that we're witnessing the idea that they can undo everything trump but on this oh well They were just handcuffed to Donald Trump. Nonsense. They are in charge. He is president. He is commander-in-chief. I've seen some people trying to say, well, look, he's still a pretty new president. He hasn't been in office that long. This isn't really his war. Excuse me. I would argue that he is near the very top of anyone currently in elected office. Joe Biden has, has, has more connection and responsibility for the war in Afghanistan than, I mean, maybe name them on one hand, people currently in office. He voted for the war. He voted to fund it and sustain it. He presided over its execution and its prosecution for eight years as vice president. And now he is president and commander-in-chief. Some of these feckless pitiful efforts to sort of just wash their hands of this as if, oh, well, it it was going to be bad and it's not really our problem. 
It's insulting. And I don't think it's going to play well. There was a quote that I saw from the former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Ryan Crocker, who served under multiple administrations, extremely well respected. Witnessing this takeover, because the Taliban fell, or I should say the Taliban caused Afghanistan to fall in a matter of days. Right? We were talking about how quickly would it continue to happen on Friday, then the weekend happened, and it's gone. Our embassy has been evacuated. We've pulled down the American flag. Old Glory is off of that building. Our people are now huddling at the airport trying to get out. The Taliban, Jennifer Griffin, our colleague here at Fox News reports, they are going door-to-door in Kabul. They have a list of people who served and helped the Americans. They're going door-to-door trying to find them and murder them. That is happening right now. Which is why you're seeing thousands of people at the airport on the tarmac desperate trying to get on these planes. Imagine being a man who served with the U.S. or helped the U.S. in some way. You've got a target on your back. You've been marked for death by these terrorists taking over your country. Imagine being a woman or a girl thinking about what your future is going to look like under the Taliban. Of course they're desperate. Have you seen the video? I I can barely bring myself to watch them. The videos of people trying to cling on to airplanes as they take off at the airport in Kabul. There's a transport, a U.S. military transport plane, where we had to clear the runway because there were so many people desperate trying to get on board. We had to use force, basically. There have been people killed at this airport trying to get them off the runway so our planes can take off. And you have people so desperate that they have clung on to the wheels of these planes as they take off and then plunge to their deaths. That is how desperate they are. And the idea that we couldn't have done it any other way, that none of this could have been foreseen, it was foreseen. And these people blithely told us from the president on down it wasn't going to happen. Calm down. If you're going to withdraw, if you're going to retreat, you need to have a plan that at least mitigates the risks, protects the people that we need to and have a duty to protect, who we owe, and avoids the fiasco of a national embarrassment and disgrace like the one we're watching now. I mean, we're what, eight months into this year, we already have two big national Disgraces under our belt, one ongoing and one at the beginning of the year. It doesn't feel great right now, to put it kindly, does it? I got sidetracked, but I want to read you this quote from Ryan Crocker, respected former ambassador. Quote, I'm left with some grave questions in my mind about his, meaning Biden's, ability to lead our nation as commander in chief. To have read this so wrong, or even worse, to have understood what was likely to happen and not care. He calls this a self-inflicted wound. He said, I think the direction was predictable, the trajectory was not. So he's horrified. And understandably so. Robert Gates, the former defense secretary, who served in the Obama administration alongside Joe Biden in his memoir, you may remember, and I mentioned this during the campaign, 
Secretary Gates wrote, and then he was pressed by reporters. Wow, are you really going to say that? Do you stand by it? And Gates said, I do stand by it. He wrote that Joe Biden has been wrong about every single major foreign policy issue and decision in his entire adult life and political career, which we all know is very lengthy. He's been in public office forever. And Gates looked at a review. This was before the current mess, obviously. He said when it mattered most time and time again and there were people at the table, Joe Biden was wrong every single time. And that struck me as significant when you are weighing the decision about who to make the next commander-in-chief of the United States of America. If that's the track record, I know that the whole mythology around Biden was, oh, well, he's been there for so long, and he's a statesman. He was on all these committees. He was vice president. All this experience. Yes, he has experience, but how much of it was bad experience, doing the wrong thing with terrible instincts? And the damage you can do as a senator is limited. The damage you can do as a vice president, still fairly limited, although he was apparently trying to talk Barack Obama out of getting bin Laden. Another one of his strokes of genius. Now he's commander-in-chief calling the shots. He not only said we are moving forward with the Trump policy, and again, you can knock Trump and the Trump administration and Pompeo for opening negotiations with the Taliban. You could have said this was a bad call. It was naive. The way this is going down, the denouement of this, the actual rubber meeting the road and the execution, it is happening right now under this administration. And they consider themselves, what, the adults in the room? Smart power? Doesn't it feel reassuring to have the smart team back? Look at this. Look at what it has wrought. I wonder, will there be accountability? Will anyone responsible for this disaster hang their head in shame, and resign. Do we do that anymore? The president has been virtually in hiding for the last few days. He's not talking about this. They put out a photo of him at Camp David looking at a bunch of video screens, sitting at this huge table by himself, a very weird photo. There are people saying that they may have outed some CIA people in their rush to post this photo to make it seem like Biden was doing something. Well, now finally he's been shamed into saying something. Other world leaders are giving speeches to their countries, in France, in Germany, in the U.K., and at last, the President of the United States, I guess they've decided, golly, he he needs to say something. So he's going to speak, he is scheduled to speak, in just about 25 minutes, 345 Eastern, we will bring you those remarks from the White House Biden cut his trip short and came back. He is now wheels down, we know that, at the White House, preparing whatever he's going to say. The press secretary is on vacation, by the way. Reporters were asking questions, sending her questions about what's happening in Afghanistan, and they got an out-of-office vacation response. I guess they'll circle back on Afghanistan. So obviously... I'm disgusted by what I'm seeing, and it's hard not to be. I would love to know if there's a single American who watches this and said, yes, this is good. I'm instilled and filled with renewed confidence in our country and our leadership. And if that's your mentality, I would love to know what substances 
you were imbibing, and maybe you can give me some of that. There's another element of this that I want to get to in the next segment, just the impotence of, like, hashtag diplomacy. We're seeing this as well. I will address that as soon as we come back. There's a lot to get to today, mostly on Afghanistan, some other issues as well. A new week and a very dark day. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, back on The Guy Benson Show. We're going to hear from President Biden here in a matter of minutes. He's scheduled to speak from the White House on Afghanistan. And his spokesman, before she went on vacation, said something last week that I thought was outrageously stupid. And I'm sure she was told to say it. Her message to the Taliban saying, well, you have to consider what the international community is going to think and what part you want to play, what role you want to have in the international community, like appealing to their better angels. The Taliban we're talking about. And Speaker Pelosi, breathtakingly to me, saw that talking point and said, you know what, that's great, I'm going to adopt it. She put out a statement over the weekend, Pelosi did, which read in part, while expressing her concerns about the treatment of women and girls and others, she said, quote, the Taliban must know that the world is watching its actions. Oh, really, Madam Speaker? I'm sure that will make them change course immediately. Oh, the world is watching, you say? Are you aware, ma'am, that we are the Taliban? We don't care that the world is watching. We know. And we're dragging people out of their houses and murdering them in the middle of the street. That's what we're doing with the world watching. We're doing that on purpose because we want to. We know the world is watching, and we're going door-to-door and kidnapping girls as young as 14 and 15 and forcing them to come be raped and turned into child brides for our fighters. That's what we're doing with the world watching. We know the world is watching. The idea that you're going to shame the Taliban, it's like you're going to, what, tweet at some cavemen and barbarians and expect them, like, oh, that's, oh, boy, we don't want the, the condemnation and calumny from Nancy Pelosi and the statement she put out on her email. Maybe we're doing this all wrong. It's just, it, it reeks of impotence and cluelessness. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. As does all of this. What a disgrace 
and a lot of people are going to die, needlessly, including people who need our help and deserve it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Guy Benson Show. As we return on this Monday edition of The Guy Benson Show, we are joined now by U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. And she serves on multiple committees in the U.S. Senate, including the Armed Services Committee. Senator, it's good to have you back here. It is good to be with you. Thank you so much. I want to play for you two sound bites, and I think the visuals that we're seeing out of Afghanistan and the reports speak for themselves. And I've just had a sinking feeling all through the weekend, and it continues into today for all the obvious reasons. I think what makes it all the more galling and what makes it feel even more humiliating and disgraceful is the fact that we had members of the administration, senior government officials, starting with the president, insisting not long ago at all that this would not happen, could not happen. In fact, the two clips I'm going to play for you are not from last year or last decade. They are from last month, July 2021. Here first is Secretary Blinken in Cut 13. I don't think that uh, the fact that our forces are are withdrawing, one, we're not withdrawing, we're staying. Uh, The embassy is staying. Our programs are staying. We're working to make sure that other partners stay. We're building all of that up. And uh, whatever happens in Afghanistan, if there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. Um, I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. Well, he said it wasn't going to happen in terms of the State Department pulling out. The embassy is still going to be there, and now the embassy is evacuated. The flag's been taken down. It's gone. And he said, and if there is a deterioration in the security situation, it won't be that rapid. It's not going to, like, happen over a weekend, I'm paraphrasing. And yet that is almost precisely what we have seen in the last few days. And here's the president himself, Senator, in cut 12. Listen, this is also in July. The Taliban is not the, South, the North Vietnamese army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Again, that was a month ago. Senator, your reaction to what we're seeing now and comparing the reality on the ground to the words and assurances of the president and the secretary of state literally just a few weeks ago. Yes, and thank you so much for having me on. We've been getting briefings since last Thursday. Fort Campbell, of course, primarily sits in Tennessee, right on the Tennessee-Kentucky line. And we have people that are either on the ground or en route over there now. We are praying for their safety. First of all, on the North Vietnamese, nobody thought the North Vietnamese were going to pop up and try to execute a a global jihad. Nobody thought that. So that is a primary difference. The Taliban, al-Qaeda, and their friends 
the Iranians, the communist Chinese, and the Russians. This is the axis of evil. And the Chinese have been very forthright in coming out and saying, we support the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. They had a picture with the Taliban leaders and the CCP leaders last week. And I used that picture in comments on the floor about the danger of this kind of partnership and the void that would be there if we pulled out. I have been proven right on my concerns there. Now, secondly, Joe Biden did not have an exit strategy. Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo, as Secretary of State, had an exit strategy. It was based on threat assessments and conditions on the ground. They were moving forward with that. Joe Biden didn't like it. He tossed that out the window. He said, I'm going to do this myself. He based his on the calendar instead of on conditions. And the Taliban has said repeatedly, you have the clocks, we have the time, we will wait you out. And that is what they did. Now, along the way, as they planned an exit strategy for us, they were dealing with their partners. We know China wants that land route straight from Beijing to Tehran. It goes through Afghanistan. This helps their Belt and Road Initiative. It also helps their Global Military Dominance Initiative. So Joe Biden has, he is very weak. He is perceived as being weak. The vice president is perceived as being weak. So therefore, you have the Chinese, the Taliban, the Iranians. They are all taking advantage of this situation and us not having an exit strategy. And the whole world is watching. And God bless our men and women in uniform. And may he protect them and our U.S. citizens who are employees of the embassy who are now stranded, our uh, special immigrant visas, all of our interpreters and our intel sources and their families that are waiting to get out. We are hearing that tonight the Taliban has their list. They are going door to door. We know that they plan to execute these people, and I am, I am absolutely horrified for them. Senator, I want to come back to that issue in just a second, but because you raised China and the specter of the CCP, this is another thing that has really been bothering me greatly. And now the Chinese state media, they're being pretty open about this and pretty explicit about it. The Chinese state media, the propaganda arm of the CCP, they are now broadcasting the U.S. collapse, the abandonment of Afghanistan, what's playing out right now, they are broadcasting that into Hong Kong and directing it at Taiwan as well, telling the dissidents in Hong Kong, the pro-democracy people in Hong Kong, the United States, they might say that they're with you, but that doesn't mean anything. The U.S. word cannot be trusted. They're not going to be with you. And there was a, a tweet that a Chinese media outlet put out basically warning the Taiwanese, if there's a war... We're going to win. You're going to lose. They're not going to help you. And no matter what they've told you, they don't have the will to do it. And just the, the coup, the PR coup that China 
is the sort of the windfall here from this debacle for the United States and to sow those doubts, perhaps reasonable doubts, in the minds of Hong Kongers and the Taiwanese people, it is gravely depressing. Yeah. Well, it is depressing. And on that point, see, China does not provide direct military support. But what China does is provide the political and economic support that our adversaries need. We continue to see this. And why in heaven's name Joe Biden will not clamp down on China? During Donald Trump's administration, he dealt with the Chinese on COVID, on currency manipulation, on trade, on military aggression in the South China Sea. He also uh, pushed them to the point that they did not step up and try to challenge him. And see, this is the difference. Our enemies knew they were our enemy. Our allies knew they were our ally. Now, Joe Biden, who is so weak, has come in, and what has he done? He has basically muddied the water, if you will. Nobody knows where they stand. The Chinese are tracking every move he makes. We have seen this, whether it is COVID, whether it is the genocide against the Uyghurs, or whether it is trade issues or dealing with U.S companies. If you do not kowtow to the communist Chinese, they have no use for you. Right. So, so that's that's the broader to... geopolitical concern here. The, the yes. prestige, the trustworthiness of the United States, our word, what we're going to do with people who help us and how we're going to stand up or if we're going to stand up to our enemies, you know, once decisions are made at a political level on a political timetable. I mean, it looks like this was about symbolism. Oh, let's get out by September 11th, come full circle, 20 years, and now it seems likely that on September 11th of this year there'll be a Taliban flag over the United States Embassy in Kabul. I mean, it's just, it's it's breathtaking, the degree of failure here. I do want to ask you, Senator, because I just saw on the Fox News channel, they put up a quote from former President George W. Bush, who does not wade into politics very much at all since he left the office. He did give an interview or put out a statement talking about how heartbroken he is seeing what's happening and the fear of women in Afghanistan, the fear of people who have helped or fought alongside the United States or served as interpreters or or in other capacities. What can be done to make sure that those people are spared from being targeted and slaughtered? Because it looks like we're trying to do it with some of them, but those rescue flights have been delayed because the chaos at the airport is just so out of control. It seems like some people, even ones that we want to try to save, are going to die because this was planned so stunningly badly in every way. Yes, and I really fear for the women and children, those that have been in business or those that worked at the embassy or maybe they worked for the Kabul Chamber of Commerce. Those are the ones the Taliban is going after. We're already getting reports that there are women who are going into hiding and they're trying to burn books or get rid of books. They're being raped. They're being forced to marry Taliban fighters. And this we know women will not be allowed to go to school under the Taliban rule. They were not previously. And so 
I've been on the ground there in Kabul. I've been to that embassy. I have met with some of those women. They were stepping up, taking these positions of leadership. They're going to kill every one of them. They have a list, and they are going after these individuals, and it is just imperative. We have worked, my team and I have worked tirelessly on uh, some individuals that need to come out of Afghanistan that have been very helpful to our troops groups there. And if any of your listeners are Afghan Americans and they're in Tennessee and they are concerned, they can call our office and uh, we will, we've got caseworkers that are, we have worked, we have worked all weekend on this. And as I said, we started getting our briefings last week. We started hearing things from the command team at Fort Campbell and from different ones. And we are just heart sick about this. This did not have to happen this way. There was a plan. He could have chosen to follow it, but out of his inept arrogance, he chose to do something differently and not follow the advice of his commanders and look at what is happening and lives are going to be lost. And when he starts to speak, I hope he's got a plan for how he's going to provide safe passage for all of these individuals, how he is going to protect all of our troops going in there because we don't want them to be ambushed. And he better have a plan that he is going to be rolling out. Well, they now have 7,000 U.S. troops going back in to facilitate the evacuation, which is almost triple the number of troops we had there just keeping the peace and relative stability. And so that also plays into uh, the, the questions surrounding a lot of the decisions and priorities that have been uh, implemented here, going back not just during this administration, but the previous administration as well. I mean, it's not like this is all just a, a clearly partisan question one way or the other. But to your point, Senator, and you guys, I'm glad that you've been working hard on the issue of getting people out who have earned the right. Yeah to live here or the or they've earned the right at least not to be killed at the hands of the Taliban for assisting the United States of America I mean wh- what a what a disgraceful thing to have happen uh, you know some of that would be on our heads on our hands I just cannot fathom how there's this mad scramble now on a foreseeable eminently foreseeable issue where there should have been a slow steady well-oiled plan in place to make sure that that happened without a wrinkle because we owe it to them over the course of months not this mad dash with people clinging to airplane wheels as aircraft take off from the airport in Kabul I mean it, it it truly does blow my mind that it has come to this the way that it has setting aside the decision yes or no on withdrawal the way it's been done I I'm trying to think of a single thing that was smart or has been done correctly. Well, there is nothing about this that has been done correctly. And as we have had hearings at Senate Armed Services and have asked for details, uh, knowing what a plan of action was going to be, we've asked about the special immigrant visas. I had asked uh, Ambassador Crocker, who was there in Afghanistan and Pakistan, I said, how many uh, do we 
have of our uh, interpreters, uh, our sources and their families that need to come out. This was about two months ago. And he put the number at 70,000. 70,000. And there was not a plan by this administration of how in 60 days, basically, they were going to exit 70,000 people. If you said, okay, we have to get all these people. Well, and and part of the problem, Senator, and we're up on a break, part of the problem actually goes back to the sound bites that we played for you at the beginning of the segment. When you had the Secretary of State insisting a month ago that the State Department was going to remain in Afghanistan with a very robust present, with their policies in place and their plans in place and the embassy fully staffed, and then that just went to hell in a, a handful of days, and the president of the United States said, quote, the likelihood that there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. Maybe they didn't have a plan because they were outright deluded when it came to what was actually going to happen in reality. And that is not a great thing when you were leading the world superpower. I mean, it, it, it breaks my heart and it also makes me angry. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican Tennessee, a member of the Armed Services Committee in the upper chamber. Senator, we always appreciate your time as we await the president and his remarks from the White House. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We are still awaiting the president. He was supposed to start speaking about six minutes ago. He is delayed. I mean, he's waited days, so what's a few more minutes, I guess? Seems kind of urgent, but they're obviously on their own special timeline over at the White House, one that is perhaps detached from the crucial timeline of reality in some important respects. When the, president, ben- when the president speaks, we will get to that on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's the Guy Benson Show. President Biden is expected to speak any moment now. He was supposed to address the nation at 3.45 Eastern, so he's late. Meanwhile, on the news channel, I'm just watching videos of people clinging to an airplane that is taking off. Just think of that. Think of that. And members of the Taliban terrorist group now just walking around, waltzing around the presidential palace in Kabul. It's over. What a shocking disaster this is. And the president will try to explain it away, see what he has to say. As soon as he speaks, we'll bring it to you on The Guy Benson Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A brand new hour of the Guy Benson Show is underway. You are listening live. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News Alert. 
President Joe Biden is speaking at the White House in the East Room. He came out just after the top of the hour. He gave some of the recent history in Afghanistan. I think some critics will certainly object to or quibble with some of his characterizations. He was then starting to lay some of this on President Trump, which was predictable. And now he is continuing his remarks. We are not sure if he's going to take questions when they are over. But let's go live to the White House and listen to President Biden on Afghanistan. And dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars. We trained and equipped an Afghan military force with some 300,000 strong incredibly well-equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their Air Force, something the Taliban doesn't have. Taliban does not have an Air Force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. There's some very brave and capable Afghan special forces units and soldiers. But if Afghanistan is unable to mount any real resistance to the Taliban now, there is no chance that one year, one more year, five more years, or 20 more years, the U.S. military boots in the ground would have made any difference. Here's what I believe to my core. It is wrong to order American troops to step up when Afghanistan's own armed forces would not. The political leaders of Afghanistan were unable to come together for the good of their people, unable to negotiate for the future of their country when the chips were down. They would never have done so while U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan bearing the brunt of the fighting for them. And our true strategic competitors, China and Russia, would love nothing more than the United States to continue to funnel billions of dollars in resources and attention into stabilizing Afghanistan indefinitely. When I hosted President Ghani and Chairman Abdullah at the White House in June, and again when I spoke by phone to Ghani in July, we had very frank conversations. We talked about how Afghanistan should prepare to fight their civil wars after the U.S. military departed, to clean up the corruption in government so the government could function for the Afghan people. We talked extensively about the need for Afghan leaders to unite politically. They failed to do any of that. I also urged them to engage in diplomacy to seek a political settlement with the Taliban. This advice was flatly refused. Mr. Ghani insisted that the Afghan forces would fight, but obviously he was wrong. So I'm left again to ask of those who argue that we should stay, how many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? 
how many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States, of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat because we have significant vital interest in the world that we cannot afford to ignore. I also want to acknowledge how painful this is to so many of us. The scenes we're seeing in Afghanistan, they're gut-wrenching, particularly for our veterans, our diplomats, humanitarian workers, for anyone who has spent time on the ground working to support the Afghan people, for those who have lost loved ones in Afghanistan, and for Americans who have fought and served in the country serve our country in Afghanistan. This is deeply, deeply personal. It is for me as well. I've worked on these issues as long as anyone. I've been throughout Afghanistan during this war, while the war was going on, from Kabul to Kandahar to the Kunar Valley. I've traveled there on four different occasions. I met with the people. I've spoken to the leaders. I spent time with our troops, and I came to understand firsthand what was and was not possible in Afghanistan. So now we're focused on what is possible. We will continue to support the Afghan people. We will lead with our diplomacy, our international influence, and our humanitarian aid. We'll continue to push for regional diplomacy and engagement to prevent violence and instability. We'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, of women and girls, just as we speak out all over the world. I've been clear that human rights must be the center of our foreign policy, not the periphery. But the way to do it is not through endless military deployments. It's with our diplomacy, our economic tools, and rallying the world to join us. Well, let me lay out the current mission in Afghanistan. I was asked to authorize, and I did, 6,000 U.S. troops to deploy to Afghanistan for the purpose of assisting in the departure of U.S. and allied civilian personnel from Afghanistan and to evacuate our Afghan allies and vulnerable Afghans to safety outside of Afghanistan. Our troops are working to secure the airfield and ensure continued operation of both the civilian and military flights. We're taking over air traffic control. We have safely shut down our embassy and transferred our diplomats. Our, di our diplomatic presence is now consolidated at the airport as well. Over the coming days, we intend to transport out thousands of American citizens who have been living and working in Afghanistan. We'll also continue to support the safe departure of civilian personnel, the civilian personnel of our allies who are still serving in Afghanistan. Operation Allies Refugee, which I announced back in July, has already moved 2,000 Afghans who are eligible for special immigration visas 
and their families to the United States. In the coming days, the U.S. military will provide assistance to move, to move more SIV-eligible Afghans and their families out of Afghanistan. We're also expanding refugee access to cover other vulnerable Afghans who worked for our embassy. U.S. non-governmental agencies or uh, U.S. non-governmental organizations and Afghans who otherwise are at great risk in U.S. news agencies. I know there are concerns about why we did not begin evacuating Afghans civilians sooner. Part of the answer is some of the Afghans did not want to leave earlier still hopeful for their country. And part of it because the Afghan government and its supporters discouraged us from organizing a mass exodus to avoid triggering, as they said, a crisis of confidence. American troops are performing this mission as professionally and as effectively as they always do. But it is not without risks. As we carry out this departure, we have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the U.S. presence will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. We will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. Our current military mission will be short in time, limited in scope, and focused in its objectives. Get our people and our allies as safely as quickly as possible. And once we have completed this mission, we will conclude our military withdrawal. We'll end America's longest war after 20 long years of bloodshed. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan, as known in history as the graveyard of empires. What's happening now could just as easily happen five years ago or 15 years in the future. We have to be honest. Our mission in Afghanistan is taking many missteps, made many missteps over the past two decades. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibly on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference. Nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. I'm deeply saddened by the facts we now face. But I do not regret my decision to end America's war fighting in Afghanistan and maintain a laser focus on our counterterrorism missions there and other parts of the world. Our mission to degrade the terrorist threat of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and kill Osama bin Laden was a success. Our decades-long effort to overcome centuries of history and permanently change and remake Afghanistan was not, and I wrote and believed it never could be. I cannot and will not ask our troops to fight on endlessly in another, in another country's civil war, taking casualties, 
suffering life-shattering injuries, leaving families broken by grief and loss. This is not in our national security interest. It is not what the American people want. It is not what our troops, who have sacrificed so much over the past two decades, deserve. I made a commitment to the American people when I ran for president that I would bring America's military involvement in Afghanistan to an end. While it's been hard and messy, and yes, far from perfect, I've honored that commitment. More importantly, I made a commitment to the brave men and women who serve this nation that I wasn't going to ask them to continue to risk their lives in a military action that should have ended long ago. Our leaders did that in Vietnam when I got here as a young man. I will not do it in Afghanistan. I know my decision will be criticized, but I would rather take all that criticism than pass this decision on to another president of the United States, yet another one, a fifth one. Because it's the right one, it's the right decision for our people. The right one for our brave service members who risk their lives serving our nation. And it's the right one for America. Thank you. May God protect our troops, our diplomats, and all brave Americans serving in harm's way. All right, that was President Biden at the White House. And what we're going to do is we are up on a break, so we're going to take it. Some quick reaction. If there are questions and answers, we might dip into some of that on the other side. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And we just heard from the President of the United States on Afghanistan. He fully stood by his decision. The speech was filled with straw men, blame shift, deflections, and avoidance of the obvious failures that are playing out under his policy. In case you're curious, he took no questions. He turned on his heel and walked away, and the White House now says he's going back to Camp David. So he flew to the White House to give us that, which was shockingly inadequate. There are so many counterpoints and questions to be raised, and clearly they know it, which is why they had him take no questions. This is the leader of the free world defending the fiasco that is playing out in real time. No questions, and back off to Camp David. What probably blew my mind the most was when he said that the centerpiece of his foreign policy is human rights, which is very different, by the way, than the sort of America First style, cold-blooded U.S. interest explanation he's been giving for this withdrawal and the way it's been handled. If the tent pole, if the touchstone of your foreign policy is human rights, rapidly withdrawing and leaving thousands or more people in Afghanistan to be murdered by the Taliban or sold into sexual slavery or forced to be child brides. I mean, the list goes on. 
it is completely un- incoherent. He said, well, we can't pursue the top goal of our foreign policy militarily. It has to be done diplomatically. Well, I'm not sure. I assume he's gotten the memo because he's president. But is he aware that our diplomatic corps has evacuated the embassy, the flag's been taken down, and we've abandoned the U.S. embassy, and we're getting all those people the hell out? What on earth is he talking about? He blamed everyone. He blamed previous administrations, including the Obama administration. He blamed Trump, of course. He blamed the leaders in Afghanistan. He blamed the Afghan military. And I'm not here to tell you that all of those entities or people are blameless leading up to this disaster. But so much of that speech was about pushing this onto others, thumping his chest about how he's doing something very brave in the interest of the United States, and defending overall the idea of withdrawal. Right, He was defending the call to withdraw as opposed to the way the withdrawal is happening. The absolute, utter chaos that's unfolding right now. He's saying, well, this did happen a little faster than we were expecting. And gosh, we're going to work hard to get people out of there who deserve our help. That should all have been planned meticulously for months and carried out in a stable scenario supported by our military. The opposite is happening. He plays, pays almost no even lip service to that reality, bypasses the core criticism right now, and then walks away without taking questions. A pitiful performance from President Biden, who continues to be wrong on foreign policy. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are joined on this Monday by Jessica Tarloff, our friend, our colleague, a Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle. Jesse, good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Jesse, it has not exactly been an uplifting show. Uh, the news cycle does not really allow us, frankly, to have an uplifting show. And so we might as well just sort of continue on this path. I wanted to begin, and I feel almost obligated as your friend to begin with just an expression of my deep, deep condolences. I know you lost your father. You tweeted about this. You were you mentioned this publicly within the last few days. And I am very blessed to have both of my parents still with us. And, I, you know, I whenever I think about losing either one of them, I can, you know, barely keep it together. And I don't want to put you on the spot, on, you know, on national radio. And I, we've exchanged texts about this, but I just wanted to say to you, I'm so sorry, and I hope that your family is doing okay and that you're finding some peace. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, as you know, and, and I think a lot of listeners, or I've talked about it before um, on air. My dad was sick for a long time. He had uh, tongue cancer that he actually got um, from living near the 9-11 site. And 
So, you know, we're taking solace in the fact that he's no longer suffering. And we were very grateful that he could pass away with us at home and, you know, no more hospital trips. But, uh, yeah, I mean, dead at 69 is definitely too young. Yeah, for that's, sure. that's young. Do you have, and if you're not in the headspace to do this, that's completely fine. Do you have a memory of him from earlier in your life that is particularly lovely um, that you feel like people, uh, you'd like people to know about your dad? Um, I mean, there are a lot of things. He was really, uh, he was fantastic. Um, I mean, memories that when I was born, so I'm the oldest, my sister's two years younger, uh, my dad left, and my mom, I should say, uh, left their careers as corporate lawyers um, to do other things, uh, other more creative pursuits. And he became a, a producer, actually. And the deal that he made with my mom is that he would travel three months at a clip to make a movie and then would be a stay-at-home dad the other nine months. So I had two parents at all of my sporting events. Um, my dad actually brought a Title IX suit against my high school for not letting my girls' basketball team get the premiere playing spot. He wanted us to have the 6.30 games instead of the 4 o'clock games. Um, he ended up winning, and there were no one at our games, but we had the more popular slot, and he was quite <laughs> pleased with himself. Uh, so he was, uh, he was a real awesome girl dad, I will say, um, and just such an accomplished, crazy career. He was selected to be a speechwriter for Chief Justice Warren Berger while he was still in college um, working at the Supreme Court. Uh, he worked in, uh, he was a prosecutor, he was an entertainment lawyer, a producer, and he finished as a winemaker. He, um, their winery out in Oregon, everyone should visit if you're into Pinot, they're Pinot pros, but he has the most 96 points uh, wines of any American winemaker uh, from the wine spectrum. Wow. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, I did not, he was like a full-blown like, renaissance yeah. man. Oh, totally. All in pink sweatpants and never in a real office, just hanging from bed at home with his girls. Um, he just, he was the greatest. And what was the winery for, I'm asking for a friend. Uh, well, uh, there are a couple projects right now. The overarching name is Chapter 24, which is um, the last chapter of the Odyssey, and it actually begins as it starts. So the whole premise is, like, there is no beginning, there is no end to anything, Um which, I mean, there's a lot written about it. He's done interviews about how he relates, you know, the product to the soil. He actually worked with a lot of chemists at MIT and Columbia on, like, yeast experiments to, like, get it right. I mean, he was a nut. Um, so Chapter 24, <laughs> Rose and Arrow Estate, um, is the higher-end one. And then there's something cool that he did. He created something called Alit, A-L-I-T, which is a transparent pricing brand um, more geared towards millennial so that his kids and their friends could drink. So you can get a bottle for $25-30. Um, they're incredible as well. Um, so there's a whole spectrum out there. I almost feel like one of these times when I'm up in New York in the coming months, we need to get together, drink Pinot Noir, and watch women's basketball. I feel like this is what we need to do. Maybe watch a movie after women's basketball, sort of like this tribute to your dad. I mean, I knew little bits and pieces of this. I didn't know that broader picture and what a career arc. That's actually pretty enviable in a lot of ways. Yeah. He packed he packed a lot into 69 years. Um, totally. 
Anyway, we we can move on. I just I wanted to just yeah, pause because you're you. you're a friend of the show. Yeah. We call you chief romance correspondent for uh, separate reasons here, and just go through something like that. I didn't want to uh, let it pass unmentioned. We were on Kennedy together last week when I was guest hosting, and you were on. And I felt like yeah. t- TV just moves so fast. I didn't want to be like you know yeah. joining us on the panel, Jessica Tarloff. Jessica, condolences Recently about your dad. Orphan Jessica Tarloff. Yeah. Right, and then like immediately get to like you know the news of the day or whatever, where you're arguing with the right. conservatives on the panel. Radio is a little no. bit more intimate. You have a little bit more breathing room, and so I, I just wanted to acknowledge it and uh, send you. along our it. our heartfelt best wishes to you and our condolences. Let's in the few minutes that we have remaining together, Jessica. I just want to mm-hmm. get your reaction. I know the president spoke earlier about this, but. The Afghanistan story is the number one story in the country right now. We are watching something play out that's almost like the pessimists and the naysayers have to feel in some sort of dark way vindicated because it's almost feeling like a worst-case scenario. And I think that partisans are trying to pin this easily on one person or one party. I think it's a lot more complicated than that, although the commander-in-chief right now is ultimately the one with whom the buck stops. As a Democrat and sort of a somewhat hawkish, more moderate Democrat in some ways, I'm just wondering how you're feeling about not just the situation on the ground, also the politics of this. So I'm... Deeply saddened, I think, like all of us are um, on both sides of the aisle, uh, because we know uh, what at least the next few months look like um, for civilians in Afghanistan. And for a lot of people who were um, part of President Ghani's government, uh, there's a central banker who's been uh, tweeting about what it's like, an Afghan central banker, about what it's like there right now for them as uh, the Taliban has swept back in. And it's harrowing. I'm sure you've seen the the footage of people uh, running after a plane, a U.S. Ugh. plane that's leaving, to holding, trying to hold on to the tires or um, the one that's actually in the air and they're falling from it. It's reminiscent of 9-11 when we saw those uh, shots of people just jumping and thinking like maybe this is going to be better. Um, So I'm, I'm really sad about it. Uh, I'm logical in that. I know that this was never going to be okay. We could either just stay there forever, which is not what the public wanted and hasn't wanted for quite some time now. Basically everybody has reversed course on whether they think that this was a, you know, a necessary conflict to begin with and and what role or presence we should continue to have there. But there's no question that this pullout um, was executed terribly. And I'm just wondering how we could have footage of Secretary Blinken and President Biden, you know, just about a month ago saying this exact thing wouldn't happen. Yeah. And then with this thing really is confidence. Happening. Well, yeah, like you idiots. Like, how, how could you think that, you know, Kabul could follow the Taliban in 72 hours? Well, here you go, baby. Like, yeah, it's, it's it happened. Happens. It's happened on your watch, and you said it wasn't yeah. going to happen, and you're the ones making the policy that allowed it to happen. And you're right. It's just a tragedy, and unfortunately, I think we're just still at the beginning stages of this tragedy. Jessica, we've got mm-hmm. to leave it there for now. Just a, a delightful conversation here. really really tough yeah it's it's like i might need to go have a 
full bottle of your dad's wine uh, after this conversation. I would recommend uh, but Je- that. Yeah. Jessica Tarloff, uh, we love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for joining us today. And we'll talk again soon and hopefully have a slightly more upbeat conversation. How about that? I hope so. Thanks. Uh, love to you and to everyone who works on your show. You guys have been incredible to me. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, we have understandably been focused a lot on Afghanistan and the unfolding fiasco, the deadly debacle over there throughout the show today. But COVID is still a massive issue. Very cheery issues, aren't they? Afghanistan collapse and COVID. But I want to read to you from a post that was sent, a Facebook post sent to me by a buddy. He lives in the South, although there are experiences like this playing out across the country now. We're starting to see surges in not just MAGA red states anymore. Hawaii has a pretty nasty one. Oregon is seeing one. Some of this is seasonal. And we know that a lot of this overwhelmingly is impacting unvaccinated people. And so this is a doctor who is operating in the South, and she posted on her personal Facebook, and I thought that she really made an emotional plea, but also respectful and logical and rational, even though obviously she is suffering and experiencing a great deal of stress from her work recently. So it begins by saying that she is feeling heartbroken. She writes, friends, bear with me. This is a long emotional post that I've been holding back. I just can't hold it anymore. And I did check this person out to make sure this is a doctor who is who she says she is. Most of you know I'm a healthcare worker. Specifically, I'm a pulmonologist and an ICU physician. This means I take care of the sickest of the sick and all of the critically ill COVID patients. This has been a truly heartbreaking week. We have lost several patients this week alone under the age of 40. The average age we are now seeing admitted to our ICUs is mid-50s now, not older patients like we were seeing in December and January. Also, these patients do not have a multitude of health issues. One of these patients that died this week did not have any known underlying health problems. Huntsville Hospital has posted these statistics, and approximately 86% of these admissions to the hospital are unvaccinated people. I have held more hands this week and had a FaceTime call with families, if possible, before I put these patients on the ventilator, because I know it will be the last time they see or speak to their loved ones. I have held on to family members who have just lost their very young spouse, and heard those screams and cries. I've come home and literally sobbed in the shower because I'm emotionally worn out. Even though I'm vaccinated, I'm highly exposed, and I fear that I could bring this home to my family, my children, because they're not old enough to be vaccinated. The entire medical staff is severely hurting and worn out. We have still not recovered from eight months ago, and we have now been faced with this again. 
The University of Mississippi Medical Center, where I trained, just opened up the parking garage to serve as an overflow hospital. And this is already full. Our ICUs here are full with no end in sight. This is not some faraway state or New York. This is here. This is happening now. The hospitals are so full of COVID patients that it is exceedingly difficult to care for other patients. We cannot transfer any patients to get potentially life-saving care because all the surrounding hospitals are full. All this time, later into the pandemic, when patients get to the point where they are this sick, we still don't have any treatment that consistently works. What we do have is a very powerful weapon in the form of a vaccine. Is this vaccine perfect? No. No medication or vaccine is. Can you still get COVID with being vaccinated? Yes. However, you have a significantly reduced risk of getting ill to the point you need hospitalization. Are there potential side effects? Sure. Same as with every medication, natural supplements, or any other vaccine you may take. In my experience, writes this doctor in Alabama, from the horrors I have seen since the beginning of this pandemic, the benefits of vaccination are far greater. Lastly, I just wanted to share part of my personal story. And honestly, this is the abbreviated version. I'm just not sure this is the message that is getting out to the general public, and I wanted this to be heard. The medical community is fighting for you, but we are exhausted. From the bottom of my heart, if you are not vaccinated, please consider and do it quickly. Talk to your health care provider with questions. What is most heartbreaking to me this time around is that we have something that can help. I consider this a win if my story can help possibly save a life and change someone's mind who is on the fence about a vaccine. Let's work together to help put this pandemic behind us. I appreciate my partners and each and every one of my colleagues. I love you all. Stay safe. That's an ICU physician in Alabama. Not lecturing, not getting melodramatic, walking through some of the objections, addressing some of the concerns, asking people if they're not going to respond to her post to talk to their doctor, but just pleading with people to please get off the fence if they're willing to be open-minded and use by far the best weapon that we have against COVID, which involves a personal choice. And as that person in a position, not necessarily of power, but of personal experience dealing with people, the shock and the sadness of losing people, including some younger people, she is asking, she is importuning people to look at the possibility of vaccination with new eyes. And I think that statement is much more powerful than any raft of statistics that I could rattle off, which I do often here on the show. I think data and facts are very important and they matter, but also so do people's experiences. And this was just a raw statement of what this woman is seeing day in and day out and begging people, we have this weapon. It works. It's not perfect, but if you weigh the benefits and the risks, quote, The benefits of vaccination are far greater. Also pray for these people 
not just those who are sick, but people caring for them. This is a massive burden and emotional toll. And I want to share her comments with you here on The Guy Benson Show. Her words, an ICU physician. And there's an act that can be taken that almost completely eliminates your chances of dying from this disease. I think her advice is strong. If you disagree, I think she's right. Talk to your doctor. Talk it through. It's not just about you. It's about your family. It's about others. The final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Back to Afghanistan. Johnny Joey Jones, a combat veteran who was wounded severely in Afghanistan, he will be here with his reaction. He has a lot to say, and we should listen. That's straight ahead. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show, Monday edition. Thank you for listening. Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our online home is GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, free every day. And this hour, the happy hour, in spite of the unhappy news cycle, sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. Had a few this weekend, as a matter of fact. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they have expanded if they're near you. In many cases, they will be right around the corner. In some cases, not. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. Joining me now is Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, host of Fox Nation Outdoors on Fox Nation, and the podcast Proud American. And here's a note about Joey's background, in case you didn't know. Enduring two combat deployments and eight years of active service in the Marine Corps, Staff Sergeant Jones suffered a life-changing injury while deployed in Afghanistan. He was a bomb technician. That 2010 IED-related incident resulted in the loss of both of his legs above the knee and severe damage to his right forearm and both wrists. Since his recovery, Jones has dedicated his life, his work, toward improving the lives of all veterans and their families. And we've talked about some of these issues before with Joey here on the air. And now the conversation becomes even more pressing and urgent and real for a lot of Americans for whom Afghanistan has been way back on the back burner of their minds now for years. And Joey, it's good to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you always for your service, your sacrifice. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the kind words. So Afghanistan was a country that literally changed your life directly. There are millions of Americans who are watching their small and big screens right now, seeing what's playing out in the streets of not just Kabul, but all around the country. And I think many people are just aghast at what they're seeing. You have been there. You've served there. You know the country. You have met many of the people. You spent years of your life on behalf of our country in Afghanistan. 
What can you tell us big picture about what you're seeing and how you're feeling? And as you talk to some of your fellow veterans who were there by your side serving the country, how are they feeling as all of this is transpiring? I think um, yeah, I'm in the group text with 14 other specifically Marine Corps EOD technicians. And um, my time in Afghanistan, I spent six months in Afghanistan, 10 months in Iraq, and, and served for eight years of our, of our war. But, I mean, collectively in that group are decades, uh, decades of service. I mean, each of those other 14 guys did multiple tours. They all were senior to me. And uh, their emotions span everything from sending Rambo memes and cracking jokes to you know, ranting at 2 a.m. about things that, that will stay between us and um, and everything in between. And that's that's a human. That's a human reaction. The truth is um, you don't go to war and come home the same. But if you come home and live a healthy life, you've learned to compartmentalize things. And many of us have done that. And we have been able to sever the, the outcome of the war from our own sacrifice pretty well. And we, normally we do so by saying, hey, listen, when we were there, we kept each other safe, and, and over the last 20 years, we haven't had another 9-11. And both of those things are absolutely true. But I think what, we, what we're learning or thinking about now is, but we still have to live with the politicians that sent us there. And we still have to live with a government that is never honest on these things, that moves the goalpost and sometimes lets the politics of a midterm or a presidential election decide what our war strategy is. And I just don't think that's sustainable. And so less than honoring our sacrifices, how do we speak up and make sure people understand the cost of this war and how important it is to not let ourselves get in this situation again? I saw a Twitter thread that you had posted over the weekend that I thought was really insightful and important because we have had people on the show, and I'm sure there are many people in our audience right now who are of mixed mind on the whole prospect and proposition of ending the war abruptly and pulling all Americans out. There are some who I'm sure are in favor of that outcome, some who are totally against that outcome, and as I alluded to, many others who aren't quite sure what the best thing would have been or should have been. It seems like it's inarguable at this point that the way that the policy of ending this war has been carried out is just a complete debacle and a disaster. I don't know what else you can call it. And we've had a few experts on, I've been reading people saying it didn't have to be this way. And one of the factors that they cite is the timing of it and its proximity, this decision and the withdrawal, the proximity to peak fighting season. And in your Twitter thread, you sort of explained what constitutes peak fighting season, what the components are, why it matters. Can you just walk us through that to help educate some folks who may not understand what that term means vis-a-vis Afghanistan and why it matters when policymakers are making decisions? Absolutely. And uh, I'll probably draw some comparisons here that people will be like, wait, what are you talking about? But I'm, I'm getting to an end. Um, as you live in America, the more rural places generally have more churches. Um, it's, it's just it's a lifestyle difference, right? That religion runs runs real deep here in the South, and we're more rural, and and sometimes we're economically disadvantaged. But but we have a culture, and it's a pretty tight knit culture. And you know, if you go to a church, everybody at that church. And so that's something that's kind of a human nature thing. When you go to Afghanistan, we're sitting here talking about the changes that will come to Kabul. Well, let me tell you, there's large parts of Afghanistan that that never really fully were quote unquote liberated culturally, and and not just because the Taliban was there, but because they are what you call Pashtun. And so there's something called Pashtun Wali, and that is a a lifestyle that predates Islam, and Islam actually adapted much of 
of the the Pashtun Wali in that region, and that region is southern Afghanistan, and and parts of Afghan of Pakistan, a big part of Afghanistan. And the reason why we we're always at a disadvantage in this war is that that region is more monolithic than either of the two countries as far as their national identity. People that are Pashtun and live in, the, in that region are more Pashtun than they are Afghani, and, and they know that and they feel that. And that was a big oversight on our own part in fighting this war. The reason why this plays into the fighting season is that essentially – the, the Afghan winter is very difficult, and to get through the mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan, you have to do it in early spring or late fall or in between. You can't do it during the winter. And so you have this monolithic group of people, this shared culture that spanned this mountain range in both countries, and we were never going to be able to blockade or, or stop the back-and-forth flow into and out of Pakistan. That was never something we were going to be able to do. There are thousands of mountain passes on the country's border that we would never even be able to monitor, and they've been using for centuries. We wouldn't find them. And so we never, we were never able to cut off the flow of resources and people and recruitment and material from Pakistan into Afghanistan. And Afghanistan and Pakistan is inseparable from the Taliban's success, whether they admit to it or not. And so what happens is they they harvest the poppy, um, and that takes a considerable amount of manpower. They harvest the poppy in late fall, and then that rolls right into winter. So from October to April, there isn't the manpower or the weather conditions to fight. They literally have to work on harvesting poppy, which is their funding, and then they're shut off whichever side of the mountain pass they're on until that's over with. So come April, a few things happen. The pass stalls, the the, the cultivate the, the sowing of poppy is done because now it's gonna it's gonna grow all summer. All right, so the workload isn't there. The opportunity and logistics are there. And third is the recruitment. I, I can't remember the, the word. I don't pronounce it correctly, but there are religious institutions. They're, they're, we used to call them orphanages because that was a perspective we had back Madrasas. then. Madrasas? Madrasas. And young boys come there from all over Pakistan, but more importantly, all over Afghanistan. And they go to school there, and they're supposed to get almost a, se- a seminary education, but it's, it's higher learning. And it is a fertile breeding ground for radicalism. It's a huge problem even in Pakistan, but it's definitely a problem in Afghanistan. So when these Taliban fighters come back through the mountain pass in April, they bring with them all their new recruits uh, who have romanticized jihad, and they're ready to go. And so every fighting season, you're not just dealing with the weather conditions, which is what a lot of people think, or the, or the, or the fact you're not sowing or harvesting poppy, now you've got thousands more people to fight against, and they replenish the coffers every single time. And so these aren't things that are unknown to anyone that's involved in this war. Part of me goes, look how integral Pakistan is to this, and did we put enough work there to maybe uh, get help or stop them from helping the Taliban? But there are probably geopolitical things that I'm not even aware of that are part of that. The other part of me goes, if you're going to do something like this, why would you lay it out to the Taliban to be a perfect scenario for them? I, I just don't understand. I mean, that's that latter point, I think, is crucial. And I'm not setting aside your point about pressuring the Pakistanis. I mean, obviously, that's a huge complication, given the fact that they harbored Osama bin Laden for as long as they did, almost certainly with some knowledge of their government, given where he was found in Abbottabad. But in terms of just laying out a roadmap for your enemy, saying this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to not do, here's the timeline, here's our deadline, a lot of it seemingly in pursuit of this symbolic date of September 11, 20 years later, that seems incredibly foolish to begin with. It seems doubly foolish, almost criminally foolish, when that timeline just happens to align with, 
ideal conditions on the ground for the enemy. I mean, I am not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I am very much a civilian with limited understanding of these matters. And yet, when you lay it out that way, and when you think about it for about five minutes, I'm not saying I have every solution. I most certainly do not. But it seems like what they decided to do is almost textbook wrong. And if that's what I'm sensing, it has to be deeply, deeply frustrating to you given what you sacrificed and your band of brothers did over there for so long. It is. Um, and, uh, you know, I just don't have the level of information to try to discern why. And so why doesn't really help me out right now. So my question is, what next? What What do we do next if, if Afghanistan is under Taliban control? Um, it seems to me like our best hope, and I, and I shudder saying this, is that the Taliban cares more about being a legitimate, world-recognized government than waging jihad abroad. That seems to be our play. It seems to be that Biden, and perhaps even President Trump, I'm not sure. I mean, he's the one that sent people to negotiate with him. Perhaps the belief is, yes, this is bloody and messy, but, but perhaps they believe the Taliban today is more concerned about establishing itself within Afghanistan and, and among international friends and foes than waging jihad and covertly waging war around the world. I, I, I know there's always been the question of, are we feeding their fuel by simply being there? And it's a legitimate question. I mean, it is a legitimate question. If you go back to the Mujahideen and how a lot of this started, it was a rejection of our involvement at all that really fueled the original fire that radicalized many of them. The Mujahideen and Taliban aren't synonymous. Much in the Mujahideen were, were not outward-looking. They were solely inward-looking, whereas the Taliban was was more, let's carry this on, and, and more radical. And so the question has always been there, is it's, it's simply being there the reason why we can't defeat them. In other words, is our presence giving them enough propaganda just by being there to recruit more? And I'm sure there's some truth to that. So now our presence isn't there. So we'll find out the answer to that. Uh, but this is certainly a bloody and messy way to figure it out. Yeah, and relying on them to be relatively good actors exactly. is pretty crazy. I mean, considering what they're already doing, murdering people in the streets, kidnapping young girls and forcibly marrying them off to their fighters. I mean, it seems like the old Taliban is back with a vengeance. And they might just shrug and say, okay, well, maybe... The U.S. is now leaving us alone, so we'll leave them alone. I would not count on that, and I think that hoping is not a strategy. And if that's a strategy, that is deeply concerning. Very briefly, last question, Joey. When you think about all the people in Afghanistan who helped us, one way or another, translators, you know, folks on the ground who cooperated with the United States, every single one of them is now in extreme dire risk for their safety, for their lives, for their families' lives. It seems like there's triage going on because of how chaotic this has been, and it seems like they're getting pushed back behind Americans who go to the front of the line, but there's a real part of me, and it has to be even more visceral for you, when you think about the people who helped us and what they now have at stake and the fate that may await them if the Taliban are able to find them. I mean, it is, it's heartbreaking, and it's actually infuriating. 
It is. Um, and there's a couple of ways to think about it, and I go back and forth. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I think I always am. Um, you know, I'd rather give you an honest answer than a definitive one. Please. Um, we, you know, we have to ask ourselves, um, to an extent it's absolutely true that that country is theirs to, to figure out. But the reality of it is we aided and abetted the situation they're in now for the last 20 years. And if we were going to spend that much time there, at some point, we had to bring wisdom back into the conversation. It doesn't feel like we did. What it feels like is that we pacified ourselves by winning battles and never focused on winning a war. Um, and that's very difficult because it, it leaves it leaves an entire nation of people in a worse place than when we started uh, because we did not give them the opportunity to take control of their country because we supported a relatively corrupt government. And we didn't train, and, and don't let them lie to you. We did not indoctrinate and train Afghan National Army. We we did supply them with materials and knowledge and information. But there's a difference between learning how to use a tool and indoctrinating someone to want to do it. Because you can give the right Marine a knife and he'll get more done than someone who doesn't want to be there with an M4. And so indoctrination is the important part. That when we say training, people think they mean marching in order and, and believing in what they're doing. When we say training, we mean here's a radio, this is how you turn it on. That's the kind of training we did. Yeah, so there's a difference like, between you know, just basic know-how and will, right? Huge, huge difference. And yeah. then there's the support structure and, I mean, a lot of the melting of the will is probably self-preservation as well. And what just keeps getting to me, Joey, is that all of this, to one extent or another, was foreseeable and it seems like almost no thought was put into any of it, and the result is this calamity that's playing out right now. And we just wanted to bring you on to give your perspective, give some of your thoughts, and help educate us about some of the intricacies that, frankly, we don't know nearly as well as you do. And we so appreciate your service and your time today. Joey Jones on The Guy Benson Show. Joey, thank you. Thank you. We will step aside. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. President Biden always said that he wants you to be the last person in yeah. the room, particularly for big decisions, just as he was for President yeah. Obama. He just made a really big decision. Afghanistan. Yes. Were you the last person in the room? Yes. And you feel comfortable? I do. Back on the Guy Benson show, that's a flashback. Kamala Harris, the vice president, being asked a question in April when this decision was announced, with a lot of critics at that time saying, this is a bad idea. The way that you're doing it is foolish. Here's what's going to happen. And a lot of that is playing out before our very eyes. President Biden at the time said, this is my call. We're doing it on my timetable. He was commander-in-chief. We're doing this on my say-so. But there's Vice President Harris saying she was the last person in the room, and she is comfortable with the decision. These two really have amazing instincts, don't they? Can chalk up another big success for the vice president as she burnishes her legacy on immigration, Afghanistan, and so much more. We're in the very best of hands. Can't you feel it? The Guy Benson Show continues next. The Guy Benson Show. 
back on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. It is technically the happy hour, but not a lot of happy news to report today. And we have been covering the situation in Afghanistan throughout the program. Earlier in the show, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, she joined us to talk about the situation and her efforts to help bring translators and other personnel who helped the United States over there escape and avoid being murdered by the Taliban. Here's part of my conversation with the senator. Senator, your reaction to what we're seeing now and comparing the reality on the ground to the words and assurances of the president and the secretary of state literally just a few weeks ago. Yes, and thank you so much for having me on. We've been getting briefings since last Thursday. Fort Campbell, of course, primarily sits in Tennessee, right on the Tennessee-Kentucky line. And we have people that are either on the ground or en route over there now. We are praying for their safety. First of all, on the North Vietnamese, nobody thought the North Vietnamese were going to pop up and try to execute a, a global jihad. Nobody thought that. So that is a primary difference. The Taliban, al-Qaeda, and their friends, the Iranians, the communist Chinese, and the Russians, this is the axis of evil. And the Chinese have been very forthright in coming out and saying we support the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. They had a picture with the Taliban leaders and the CCP leaders last week. And I used that picture in comments on the floor about the danger of this kind of partnership and the void that would be there if we pulled out. I have been proven right on my concerns there. Now, secondly, Joe Biden did not have an exit strategy. Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo, as Secretary of State, had an exit strategy. It was based on threat assessments and conditions on the ground. They were moving forward with that. Joe Biden didn't like it. He tossed that out the window. He said, I'm going to do this myself. He based his on the calendar instead of on conditions. And the Taliban has said repeatedly, you have the clocks, we have the time, we will wait you out. And that is what they did. Now, along the way, as they planned an exit strategy for us, they were dealing with their partners. We know China wants that land route straight from Beijing to Tehran. It goes through Afghanistan. This helps their Belt and Road Initiative. It also helps their Global Military Dominance Initiative. So Joe Biden has, he is very weak. He is perceived as being weak. The vice president is perceived as being weak. So therefore, you have the Chinese, the Taliban, the Iranians. They are all taking advantage of this situation and us not having an exit strategy. And the whole world is watching. And God bless our men and women in uniform. And may he protect them and 
our U.S. citizens who are employees of the embassy who are now stranded, our uh, special immigrant visas, all of our interpreters and our intel sources and their families that are waiting to get out. We are hearing that tonight the Taliban has their list. They are going door to door. We know that they plan to execute these people, and I am I am absolutely horrified for them. Senator, I want to come back to that issue in just a second, but because you raised China and the specter of the CCP, this is another thing that has really been bothering me greatly. My full interview with Marsha Blackburn, Senator from Tennessee, available on the free podcast, which is on demand, no charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, we'll talk about the weekend. It was sort of a weird one. Relaxing for me, relaxing for producer Christine, but the specter of national failure and human suffering hanging over the whole experience. We'll reflect on that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on the Guy Benson Show, Monday here on the program, and the weekend, sort of on paper, was about as good as it gets from my perspective. I got home just in time for the show on Friday, did the show, and then got a workout in, did some quick packing, then Adam and I packed Roy up into the car, we drove down to a lake in Virginia, where my best friend Mary Catherine and her family have a house. And she was down there with the girls. She's, of course, pregnant with her third. And they are just dear close friends to us. And we had a wonderful time out on the lake, on the boat. We were grilling. We watched the latest Ted Lasso episode all together. Had some wine, a little bourbon. The dogs were running around. The girls were adorable, drawing pictures for us. It was just great. And yet, throughout the weekend, of course, Mary Catherine and I both work in news and political commentary, so we often banter back and forth about news of the day and other current events. It was almost impossible to push out of our minds what's happening in Afghanistan, because there is this gnawing sense of national responsibility and national humiliation and disgrace. And you can blame... All sorts of people for it, and the blame should be shared. But just as citizens and taxpayers and voters, we kept gravitating back toward this conversation, not with the little kids around, because it's too upsetting, I think. But we would talk about it, and Mary Catherine's husband, he had been over there at least once to Afghanistan. And we just discussed it repeatedly and so things would get pretty heavy and pretty intense for little periods of time and then we kind of had to just force ourselves to still appreciate and enjoy the blessings that we have being free citizens of this great country here and not dwell endlessly on the suffering and terror that is happening in Kabul and all around that country right now. So there was a strange juxtaposition of an idyllic American summer weekend 
with the horror in Afghanistan right now. Like, you would, it would slip out of your mind from time to time. We were in the lake at one point. We were swimming. Roy, our dog, is not much of a swimmer. He can do it. He does not like to do it. He's kind of scared of the water. But we want to make sure that he can swim if push came to shove. So sometimes, especially at the lake, because it's very low risk, it's the sort of the shallow little area, we will have him practice. And he can do it. He paddles around. But he has a sense of purpose in that he paddles either directly to a human being or to the shore to then dry off and run around as if he's just experienced a near-death encounter, even though he doggy paddles just fine. So I carried him with me into the water, and as we got a little bit deeper and deeper, he was clinging to me a little bit more intensely. And then we had him swim over to Adam, who was right near the shore. And Adam was encouraging him and saying, come on, bud. And he blew right past Adam onto the little beach and up onto the grass. And he shook himself off, came onto the dock, settled down in the sun and said, I think I've had enough of that. Whereas their dog, Scout, can just, like a torpedo into the water. You throw a ball or a toy and he gets some serious air. So we're watching this and we're taking photos and the girls are doing sort of their little swim lessons and got a few beers out or whatever and it's just perfect. And then this thought of the outside world creeps in again. And that was my experience all weekend long. Maybe I'm thinking more about it than you are. Maybe I'm thinking about it less than you are. I think there are a lot of Americans who have watched on social media and on TV and are just horrified, as we've talked about throughout the show. You can be anywhere on the spectrum, or at least most places on the public opinion spectrum in this country, from we should have gotten out completely a long time ago to we should still be there, at least to some extent. There's a whole range of opinions along that continuum. I dare say most people, most Americans are looking what's happening, are looking at what's happening, and are just mortified. For them, for those poor people, for us, worries about what this could mean in the future, the Taliban in charge of a country. I mean, we've seen that movie before. It ended with 9-11, which many of us remember vividly. Some of us are too young to remember. Those of us who do remember, it is, I promise you, something you never want to live through, anything close to it. And there seem to be no perfect options, no easy answers, but an overriding sense of, but we can't have this. This is not acceptable. I saw Trafalgar polling, which had sort of a mixed record in 2020. They had some races a lot closer than most pollsters and turned out that they were close races in some of these states. They did a national poll on Afghanistan, and it's almost 70% disapproving of the president's handling of it. I'd love to meet the 10% of people who strongly favor Biden's handling of this. I mean, did they poll members of the actual Taliban? I'm trying to figure that out. So while there was a strong appetite, I think, for America to disengage and withdraw substantially or entirely from Afghanistan, there's some polling data that suggests that people were okay with a very limited footprint, 
with low to non-existent casualties, as long as it was keeping stability and the peace and making sure that we can take the fight to terrorists in that theater, as opposed to giving them space and breathing room to plot attacks against us. I mean, when you start asking questions that way, the polling actually gets sort of interesting. And it's not just like, oh, yes, out immediately. But there was a strong, I would say, appetite based on many polls for the U.S. to withdraw completely or mostly from Afghanistan. But not like this. Christine, I know you had a pretty quiet weekend as well. You went out to dinner with Bobby and it seems like this was really weighing on your mind as well. This really impacted my weekend guy. You know, uh, my daughter is away with uh, Judge Joyce for the week. And so my husband and I had a free weekend. And I have to say, just like you, we, we, you know, we went to the movies. We saw an amazing movie, Aretha, about Aretha Franklin. We went to dinner. We took hikes with our dog. But everything kept coming back to this. You know, we didn't even want to go out much Saturday night after dinner. I just wanted to get home and read and watch and I was up to one in the morning going through social media. My heart is just breaking. And it's also just bringing back, like you said, so many memories from 20 years ago. Uh, we're back where we started. And I never, ever want to go through what we went through on September 11th again. And I fear that something like that can happen. It, we have to do something. What Biden did was just the worst of the worst possible outcome and something has to be done and people need to be held accountable. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the questions I've had throughout this, these last few days, because it's been a just stunningly rapid, the collapse. It's not like we've watched this slow motion train wreck play out. It happened really fast, Eight. almost in like fast forward motion. It was really, really quick. And you're like, okay, what about the people who were responsible for preventing this? What about the people who predicted, including the president, that this would never happen? Top officials. Intelligence that was wrong. I mean, is there any accountability here? And I know the conventional wisdom is that the American people ultimately don't really care about this and elections aren't decided on foreign policy almost ever. And I'm not sure I disagree with either of those. I'm not sure that this is going to be something that is like lasting in the minds of voters in 2022 or 2024, although there definitely could be remnants of it. We don't know what the future holds either. But I do think the notion that no one cares here in the U.S. and it's sort of just like, oh, that's a shame and we'll all move on. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not convinced of that because it is actually sickening. I think for a lot of us, the reaction is visceral. I watched that video of those poor people falling from the plane, trying to get out of the airport at Kabul. And you know exactly, I talked to you about it earlier, you know exactly what a lot of people were thinking. They're watching that and then thinking about the people falling from the towers on September 11th. Yeah, we bodies falling from the sky. It's, oh. I mean, it, there was this chilling callback. There was. And the... The two photos side by side of Saigon in the mid-70s mm-hmm. and then the chaos at the airport in Kabul. There's just a lot of echoes of history here, none of them good. And, 
you know, I'm not complaining that my weekend was not just hunky-dory. I think that sometimes being a caring and thoughtful person involves having your own personal pleasure or fun at least impacted or put on hold by world events. I mean, I think a lot of the reason that we're in this and so many of you are out there listening, you care. You care about what happens to the country. You care about what happens in the world. Politics sometimes feels like team sports and entertainment, but under all of that are policies and personnel and decisions that matter a lot. And if you're an American who cares about the country, cares about the promises that we make, cares about our allies, cares about our reputation, if you're one of those people, and I think most of us here are, it's really hard not to be affected by this on some level, personally. I will say, Christine, lastly, on a much lighter note, one of the bright spots has been the occasional check-ins and dispatches over from Italy from our colleague and friend, Quiet Wyatt. His first ever international trip. He'd never been out of the country. He's there with his brother, and I believe he was starting off in Rome for a number of days. He had a photo from the Trevi Fountain, which is beautiful. And some of the sights, of course, are gorgeous in Italy, but he knows us well. He's been sending us photos of his food, (laughs) of his pasta, of his gelato, and I'm just thrilled for him. It looks like it's been an amazing trip so far, and we'll keep you posted, but I'm jealous. There's that. I'm jealous. Have you been to Italy, Christine? I have not. We were going to go for my 40th slash 10th anniversary this past summer, but um, we had decided against it. I had thought, for some reason I had it in my mind that you maybe hadn't been. Quiet Wyatt beat you to Italy. Quiet Wyatt. Listen, hey, he might be in Italy right now, but Bobby and I went to Staten Island Saturday night for Italian dinner, okay? So... I mean, that. I don't feel like I'm missing out that much. Italy, Staten Island, who can really tell the difference when push comes to shove? <laughs> Have a great time, Wyatt. Well, we're going to step aside because we are out of time. But we'll be right back here tomorrow. I'll be heading up to New York doing the show from there. Some TV duties upcoming again. So we will fill you in on all of that. When we hit the airwaves, same time, same place tomorrow for the Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.